economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, it's good to be back, listeners. We had pre-recorded, maybe you picked up on some of that, maybe you didn't, but quite a few episodes going into the holiday break. So this is our first time together doing the podcast in, what is it, fellas, about four weeks or so, three weeks, three, four weeks, something like that. So it's good to be back in the office surrounding the microphone with some, for some good dialogue. And a lot has happened over the last week and this podcast will come out a little bit later, but I think it'll still be a pretty hot topic of this storming the capital stuff. And I brought it up as just a sign that I hope in terms of, since we study institutions at the Gortney Institute, that the presidential powers are just too big. And I should say federal powers in general, if we want to tie in Congress and stuff. And then, so to me, I hope this is a glowing example of uh, maybe a bipartisan effort, if you will, of people of all minds to say, what have we done in the United States? I think there's actually just too much power. People wouldn't care what the president says or does for the most part, if it didn't have so many implications both for us domestically and possibly worldwide. And so the idea of limited government, of course, has been long out the window pretty much since the Great Depression timeframe. And government has continued to grow in terms of its fraction of the economy. So if gross domestic product, all of our, the dollar value of all final goods and services produced to within the nation's boundaries over the course of the year is around 23 trillion or so, roughly in the low 20s. Government spending is about 5 trillion of that. So we've, we've been hovering in the 20 up to 25%, depending on the ebbs and flows of the economy, is the size of government spending as a fraction of the economy. And then I guess on top of that, the other thing that has exponentially grown is transfer payments. So take from the rich, give to the poor, take from the employed, give to the unemployed, take from the young, give to the old. I said that one already, didn't I? (laughs) Maybe I didn't. So all of the transfers of government being instrument of taking from one person and giving to another in the effort of distributive justice or some other claim now runs about 65% of the federal spending bill. And that was much less many years ago. And I can't help but think some of the civil unrest that we have today is in part due to people fighting over the government money to some degree and government programs coming in. I tend to be one to think that if if government was more hands-off, I think we'd be in a better position. But that is just my opinion. Now, when I said big government, when we had a little pregame talk here before this podcast, Justin said, I feel just the opposite. And I think he's crazy. But uh, let's hear what he has to say. Well, that's not what you said. You said <laughs> the presidency. Right? The presidency. You I did say yes. the presidency has too much power and that this was just an example of the president having too much power. And I said, I completely disagree. 
And the reason I said I completely disagree that this was an example of the president having too much power is because what we have seen in the past, very explicitly in the past two weeks, but I think actually over the course of the past four years, is that I think presidents have less power than people normally think they do. For instance, after we have this demonstration, then riot in the Capitol that ends with the storming of the Capitol, we have the sitting president of the United States kicked off Twitter. He has now kicked off YouTube. His email distribution companies have stopped distributing his emails. Is that right? You don't see a lot of press conferences with him. Maybe that's because he's not doing any, but... For as much as this President Trump likes to be in the spotlight, I find it very, very odd that he is not out there communicating with his followers directly. And one of the reasons we know he's not doing that is because we know that every single link in the software stack is being yanked out from under him. Now, you can say that that's good or bad. I think think that's just a fact of the matter. Yeah. And since that's the case, and it is this sitting president of the United States... I tend to think that that shows that presidents don't have this kind of unilateral power that people generally think they do. And if we then say, you know, I said it's very clear in the past two weeks, look over the past four years. I actually got in an argument with one of my friends about this recently, who was saying that whoever controls the government is really the person in power. And I I remember saying something like, well, somebody who's nominally, you know, the head of the government, you know, let's... If you really thought that Trump possessed the kind of dictatorial power that people who think the president is a kind of dictator do, I just think it's a matter of fact that the the southern border wall would just be built. That was his signature policy issue. And it's not. He could not get that done. And maybe he's just incredibly inept. And I'm open to that interpretation as well. But when you look at the signature policy issues of the past eight presidents, they don't get done. And so to me, that indicates that presidents just aren't as powerful as people normally think they do. Now, I think you are 100% right when you say that people are arguing about, you know, people spend too much energy fighting over the presidency. You don't have to sell me on that. I 100% agree on that. But it appears then to me like, you know, people investing all their energy and, you know, who comes out ahead in, you know, a WWE fight. So I think I'm going to somewhat agree with both here, and maybe there's going to be more reconciliation between Russ and Justin in a second after I stop interrupting. But my thought is, I agree with Russ, and Justin actually probably agrees with this too, that I think the president still has too much power, probably not as much as people think the president has, but government in general, I think is too large and has too much discretion in our lives. So I don't know where I would say the level is, a lot or a little, but I know I would say it's larger than what I would want it to be, which is close to zero. But that does beg the question then, you know, if we sort of have some kind of a- agreement here that it, it wasn't just a, a worry about the presidency itself. I was trying to think, if Justin's right, why were the people protesting? Is it because they're wrong and they all think the presidency is really important? But I actually don't think so, now that I think about it. I think this was more symbolic than actual. I'm sure there were a few crazy people uh, amongst this crowd storming the Capitol who thought they were going to overthrow the U.S. government and, you know, replace all of the terrible people that they dislike and all that. But I think most people there probably didn't expect anything at all to come of it, not consequences for themselves or, you know, benefits. I think most people who entered the doors didn't think they would be leaving with Donald Trump as president for the next four years. 
the way that I'm looking at this is it feels like a religious demonstration of sorts. It's sort of like desecrating of a temple. I, I mean, the, the U.S. government is the temple for certain people who they think are the elites in society. And they thought, hey, how funny would it be if I took Nancy Pelosi's podium? And you see that reflected in a lot of the pictures. I mean, people were, you know, again, this is a crime. It was a violent ride. And so, and so of course, I oppose it. But people in there looked ridiculous. I, I mean, they looked goofy. They didn't look like they wanted to be serious revolutionaries. There was the guy wearing the Viking helmet, right? They looked like they wanted to be funny. Some of them, uh, again, obviously, there were some that weren't. And so I think this might have been even sort of a symbolic gesture. This, I think, could have just as easily have happened at Harvard or Yale. It just so happens that the decision was being made in the Capitol. So when Justin first made the claim, it's like people aren't rational about the knowledge of the power of the presidency, in a sense, that they're deceived that the president can do. We know Obama put in executive orders that then got overturned because they didn't go through the longer term channels that would make make things stick more, right? And then Trump the same. And so now Biden's going to be able to undo some of what Trump did. And so we start to have this ping pong effect. And I'd like to think that we have some rationality among the whole group of people here on our little island called the United States. But then, of course, I was quickly reminded of my own theory that I totally believe near and dear, and that's rational ignorance. And so it is very possible to be rational and ignorant of what exact presidential powers there are. And the rational ignorance argument is that the benefits of learning exactly how powerful the presidency is don't outweigh the cost of doing so. So to learn the details of the power of the presidency, you might have to spend, I don't know, maybe a semester or something worth of learning, at least 40 hours, I would think, to really learn some of the details. And then, of course, you'd have to stay current on the the new changes that are forthcoming. So you'd be investing a serious amount of time, which of course our talking heads on the news media do all the time, because there the cost for them is worth the benefits because they're getting paid to do their job. But for us people who have our minds on other things and our bodies engaged in other working activities, that's completely not rational to spend 40 hours and potentially a continuing education, if you will, of five hours a week, learning about the powers of the presidency, let alone the powers of Congress and all the other aspects of it. So my point is that rational ignorance is abound and alive and well, and certainly plays a role in this. And so then I think we get to the point that Justin was making where the media is driving a lot of things because with a rationally ignorant public, then the media can garner more and more power. Yeah. On emotion, maybe. Can I say two things? More than two. What you said and one related to what Peter said. So first of all, if you believe in rational ignorance, which you you said you believe in, I'll come out on the table here and say, I, I certainly believe in rational ignorance, right? One of the things that you ought to be wary of then is something not only like executive power, but also like direct democracy too. Because if you think that people are rationally ignorant about the kind of political decisions, you would want to limit the kind of power that government has. So earlier, you started out this show by saying you think that this shows that the government has too much power. And that I completely agree with. Um, So I'm I'm 100% on board with you there. And then I liked what Peter said about this being kind of like a religious (laughs) demonstration. That was a good insight. 
I don't think that what we saw was a coup, which I've seen it described right. as a like lot. There was, think, like, yeah, that was spot on. I, I mean, I they, they weren't really trying to. Yeah, I think that's absolutely insane. And if you actually look, like you said, at the pictures of what was happening, it is, you know, people dressed in goofy outfits taking pictures with, uh, you know, the podium. Now, I actually think that the people who were protesting viewed it more like a demonstration and an airing of grievances rather than like a religious demonstration. But I think that the people who were demonstrated against viewed it like a religious demonstration. So I think the people who were demonstrating thought, this is goofy, I'll take some pictures with the podium. And then you found the people who had their podium stolen and the media in general saying, oh my God, they desecrated our temple. And I've been seeing this with a lot of you know, my friends from the place that I'm from, you know, saying, can you believe, you know, they did this in our hallowed hall yeah. of, you know, they, it, sacred they ground, really do of, view yeah. it like a desecration of the temple. Sacred yeah. ground being used. Yeah. yeah. This isn't like my, I read an article, it's not my original thought, by a conservative actually, who used to like similar language that you need to view this as a desecration of the temple. It's certainly not my temple because I'm a Christian, so I'm, I'm not a, of the state religion, but it, you know, I think it's an important lens to view it through. When I hear that argument, and you know, like you said, I've, I've heard it a lot lately, and also from both sides, I think it reveals more to me about the priors of the people making that argument that, you know, yeah. I just go like, are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> well, and if you don't believe that, or I'm sorry, if you do believe that government control and power and redistribution and other things is the key to having the right people in the right place, I mean, then it does make sense that that would be the place to do it, that we need to be managed, right? The economy needs to be managed by some smart people and the right buttons pressed, whereas folks in this room tend to believe in the spontaneous order that emerges through individuals choosing what's best for themselves, especially among a diverse population like the United States, that we're going to get a lot of good outcomes by letting people do what they want to do. And I think competition keeps some of those bad elements out in ways that people don't quite understand. They look to the government to be the police that, oh, that person said the wrong thing, and so they need to be penalized, whereas spontaneously social order has emerged all over in the course of history on bad things get overcome through competitive forces. And I'm usually not the one to bring faith into these conversations, but I think I'll do it here, is that the feeling of having your temple be desecrated is a very, very strong one, right? It's a feeling of disgust. And it's one of the strongest kind of emotions that that can arise in people. And it, it can really fuel a kind of desire for retribution. Yeah. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that when there's a certain class of people who make this argument that, you know, the temple was desecrated, and then you go, well, that kind of sounds like a religious argument. And they go, I'm not religious. Religion is stupid, right? <laughs> and I tend to think that humans just might be religious creatures, period. Right. Mm -hmm. And people who don't think that they have a religion and then make this kind of argument you realize, oh no, there is a religion that you have. And the one that you have, if it is enabling you to make these kinds of, or 
it is kind of unleashing these emotions against your fellow man like this, it might be a pretty dangerous one. And so maybe one of the things about classical religions is that they usually tend to kind of constrain that emotion where we don't think of another party winning or taking control of the government as somehow desecrating all that you hold holy. Yeah. Well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And when we come back, I want to challenge the crew here to talk about what classical liberalism means and how the world might look a little different with these events if we were following more of the traditions of classical liberalism. So we'll be back in just a bit. By 2030, the Gordy Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith and their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and encouraging education on the faith and economics. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University seeks to create an intercollegiate competition event to promote improved understanding of philosophy, politics, and economics, PPE, and applications of classical liberalism in the defense of Western civilization. The philosophy component will revolve around the importance of reason and free, honest discourse. The politics component will highlight the historical importance of the rule of law and limited government in the promotion of human flourishing. The economics component will focus on the role of freedom and markets in generating prosperity, focusing on the works of economists in the tradition of Adam Smith, Mises, Hayek, and Thomas Sowell. Colleges will create academic teams of three to 12 members that will engage in lots of activities that surround these topics. If you want to have your student, or if you are a student that wants to go to a college that does stuff like that, Come and see us at Ottawa University. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right. So let's continue on here. Justin, I thought you're the perfect person as our Menard family professor of philosophy and ethics to give us a little background on classical liberalism as certainly something we've talked on and off all the time on this podcast about, but give our listeners a sense of what it is. So typically when you hear the word liberal today, or even liberalism, that's typically contrasted with conservatism, right? And that wasn't always the case. And if you are in favor of things like market economies, laissez-faire economics, laissez-faire, hands-off, right? Small government, hands-off. Yeah, leave us alone. Leave us alone. Let alone. Yeah. Yeah. That actually arose out of what's typically called the classical liberal movement. And so even, you know, the great economist Ludwig von Mises wrote a book entitled Liberalism, and it was a full-throated defense of free market economics. And so when people say the word classical liberalism, what they usually mean is a kind of theory of government and economics which highlights the role that freedom plays in the maximization of well-being. It's this view, and you know, it kind of start. You can see seeds of it in Adam Smith. Although Adam Smith wasn't necessarily a classical liberal, you usually find you know, that word kind of being more applied to Mill, who, of course, incorporated a lot of 
Smith's insights, but this view that what government ought to do is do the thing that makes everyone the best off. And that thing that makes everyone the best off is usually to let them alone and let them maximize their own utility. Live and let live, right? Live and let live. So anything you want to add to that, Peter? I don't have much in addition to the classical liberalism point. I, I will say, I guess it's it's sort of related, both in the idea that Justin was just talking about, that is people actually succeeding at their own goals. And if there were any, you know, classical liberals, though, I'm not sure there are, but if there were any in the protest, I will say one, one thing that I think doesn't work to promote classical liberalism or any idea, really, you know, neoconservatism, this Trump version of conservatism, whatever that is, I'm not sure that we have a good name for it yet. None of these programs succeed with measures that were just used. And so I think in my view, and I, I think this harkens back to something Justin was saying earlier, I don't see the Trump brand of conservatism, even though Trump was in power for a while. And in fact, Trump had the all the whole legislature and himself for his first two years, right? Even at that time, I have never viewed the Trump Republican Party as in power. I don't think that they accomplished much, just like Justin said. And I think it's because they don't really have a whole lot of sway in the institutions that actually follow through with policies. And so they don't have much power. But one way to not, you know, grab power is to go and make a fool of yourself and, and to do things, by the way, which led to people dying. And so I think that ultimately the, the problem with this Capitol Hill protest and the riot, you know, apart from just the violence, is it's not even going to achieve the ends that the people who are doing it want to achieve. This isn't going to bring President Trump back into power. And in fact, it's probably going to drive his supporters, you know, further under the Overton window, we'll say. In other words, you know, you're even going to be more out of the conversation if you're someone who wants a border wall, because that now this is tied to a Capitol riot. I think just like, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda probably did not benefit that much from 9-11 in the grand scheme of things. Maybe some forces over there did, but, you know, that specific organization probably swiped off the planet. I don't think you do much good by spitting in the face of someone who has power over you impotently. I, I think that ultimately just hurt their cause. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think part of the classical liberal tradition is voluntary association. And so through Deidre McCloskey calls sweet talk and persuasion, you get people to think your way rather than this violent method. And so I think that's part of the classical liberal tradition is that you don't use force or coercion, which is part of the reason why uh, government is kept limited because through their powers, they can force the values of the majority. And to tie back a little bit from the first half of this podcast, if that majority is rationally ignorant, then it's more likely that minorities can pop up and have their agenda put forward because the masses are staying silent and blissfully rationally ignorant until it really starts to blow up. And I think some of these blowups is some of the confusions and um, civil problems we've been having the last uh, few years. Yeah. And, and in history, classical liberalism has been advanced through, you know, revolution and that sort of thing. What was the founding of America but that? Yeah. But I think neither the cause of this riot, the stop the steal stuff, nor the means of it were were sufficient for the violence. I mean, 
I don't think that no. uh, there is any sort of justification that I've seen provided that makes it seem necessary to have stormed the Capitol and, you know, police officers being trampled and things like that. I, I, I don't think personally, but neither would it have been, neither, even if it, if it did have justification, would it have been successful in the first place? Yeah, I, I think to go back to the way Justin put free markets, you know, support of free markets, I think the usual knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, if we have free markets, then things are going to get really, really bad. You know, we need the government to be monitoring and regulating all of these greedy, profit-seeking, selfish businesses and or people from just having complete chaos. Now, some people would argue some of what we've seen the last few years is chaos. So what has bigger government, more control? That's part of my point before. We're sitting where we're sitting now, I think in part due to that. And so my reaction to people who say we need the government to constrain that, it misses the boat of competition. So competition is the natural check and balance where if somebody's making, just to give a simple for-profit argument, so somebody's making too much profits, if we have an economic system that supports competition, it's real easy for a startup company to start doing what that person's doing and offering a reasonable substitute for it and thereby brings the price down, brings the profits down and profits go back to normal. And too often the government is too quick to react. I will have to say that sometimes market corrections take longer than what the government might be able to impose by law. And so too often we're short-sighted not allowing the market to kind of correct itself, which may take a few years in some cases if there's something going on. But competition in, in all of its forms is an important, important aspect. I want to build off what you just said for a second, because one of the things that I think you're hinting at is that there is actually a little bit of tension that can arise when classical liberals say things like, well, Central classical liberals, and we want what's best for people. We want people to live, you know, we want people to flourish. That's our goal. And we also think that a market economy with strong individual rights is the best way to do that. Sometimes arguments can arise that, well, actually, there are these cases where market economies can produce results that aren't in everyone's best interest. I'm not saying that's the case, I'm saying it's arguments to that extent. And so, that was actually one of the reasons why you had this divergence between uh, what came to be the, the progressive movement in the 20s and why that broke off from liberalism, where we can actually have the government come in and create these policies. This, and the argument went, these policies will make people better off, even though they aren't policies that they would choose on their own freely. Right? Yeah. So like prohibition is one of those things. Now, this is one area where I think what marries really well with classical liberalism is a kind of federalism, right? For the competition reason that you yeah. just stated earlier. If classical liberals really do care about making people, you know, as well off as possible, and what they care about is, you know, maximizing utility or whatever, which is how Mill put it, right? Since we actually can't know beforehand exactly what policies are going to maximize utility, what we would want is things like states or even smaller jurisdictions uh, running these kinds of experiments. And then we can see what policies actually end up maximizing utility. What you wouldn't want to do 
is to do this kind of a priori thinking where you can just decide for yourself that something like, you know, banning alcohol consumption is obviously better for everybody. So we're going to impose that from the federal government on down, right? What you would want to do if you are a classical liberal and to the extent that you're a good empirical social scientist is you want these experiments to be running simultaneously mm -hmm. so that you can kind of, in the same way that people can compete between firms, you would want them to be able to at least hopefully compete between jurisdictions. Yeah. Okay. And, and with that, it, it's better serves the to just kind of add on top of that, the people are different. So the diversity of, of preferences are better met through a federalist idea because some people might like, uh, and we can get into natural resources maybe, like the beach versus good hunting ground or fishing ground versus wide open spaces of North Dakota or South Dakota, right? And so people can vote with their feet is the Tebow hypothesis that will self-select if, we, if we're allowed to have smaller jurisdictions that are diverse and, and different and people are different, they're gonna migrate to the places that best suits them in terms of maximizing their happiness in a particular situation. And one, th one thing that comes from that, Russ, that's good is if you decentralize power by having more of these sort of sources of power on local levels, you actually lower rational ignorance a little bit. Mm -hmm. You lower the, yeah. the amount of ignorance because if you know your city government has a lot more power to make decisions yeah. that influence your life and your city only has a thousand people instead of 300 million people, you're going to have a sort of an investment in actually learning about the things going on in your city. And so this is nice. It provides the benefit that there's actually an incentive to become informed about politics. Whereas, you know, if you're one in a sea of 300 million, it's going to be really hard to make a difference. And so it makes sense to be a little bit ignorant. On a city level, you could maybe make a difference in city politics. It's a little different. It's also much easier to put on your biking helmet and war paint and go to your city councilman's office. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it has a little more meaning when they're your neighbor. That's close. So. I wanted to point out something that when you said the progressive era of the 20s, and I think we learned a lot, like you said, good social scientist that looks at the data over the last, since the 1920s, so the last hundred years, when technology was abound and information was coming, it I can reasonably see why people started to see like, oh, maybe society can be engineered better, right? And so having a more active government might be a good way to go. Of course, there's others that protested that right away. That would be more in the camp. But I think now as we've gone through the last hundred years, right up to this current protest and other civil unrest that we have, my argument is that that uncertainty is gone now. I think we see that social engineering and bigger government, bigger intervention isn't working. So how can we have a movement to go back to the more classical liberal ideas. Well, we're, we're just not doing it right yet, Russ. I know. Just need to that, a little exactly. I've got a new idea. <laughs> exactly. It's always throw a little more money at it, get a little bit more smarter person, get the right group together. I did want you to, I really like your definition, Justin, of human flourishing. So I was wondering, you mentioned flourishing as part of what you were speaking about. And what is your notion of what human flourishing is? Well, I think defining flourishing is actually very difficult. Aristotle defines it, I think it's in the eudaimonian ethics, as exercising all of your abilities at their greatest capacities. Yes. So I remember, you know, after, that's the part I really liked yeah. and, and that I didn't write down. And I was really asking genuinely because I wanted to write down now <laughs> what, what that is. So <laughs> I remember driving my parents back 
to the airport after my second child was born and my mom's listening like are you happy justin and which is a question she asks me all the time and it's <laughs> infuriating to have to answer that <laughs> but i gave her that definition of flourishing because it's also aristotle's definition for happiness right he considers flourishing to be happiness and i mm-hmm. said in that in that case then yes i'm very happy I'm exhausted. I'm exercising <laughs> all of my uh, capacities at the greatest extent possible. Yeah. But when you think about the kind of life that you want to live, people say, well, I just want to be happy. Well, if by happy, you mean something like the heroin user feels like when they, you know, you just feel like, you know, this kind of physical sensation of bliss. That's not the kind of life you would want for yourself. You would want a life where you are exercising your capacities to the best of their ability. Yeah. And since that's the kind of life that we we would want for ourselves, that's the kind of life that we would want our governments, insofar as they can, to allow us to live. Right. And then that's where the tension comes in that some people are of the mindset of, oh, I know what's best for you. So the government has the K-12 learning system and we start we start molding and allowing you to reach those capacities as opposed to a little more hands-off approach which would be through voluntary associations, you even as a youngster starting and granted you need the guidance of your parents and whatnot to in making choices, but you start to gravitate towards different things that you like. And so how much needs to be forced upon you and how much can be voluntary, I think is part of where the the tension lies. I think there's even, you know, that I'm now offering prescriptions, I guess, which is the opposite of what Russ just said. But I do think that there's something, if we accept this idea of flourishing, being exercising all of your capacities, I think there's something to be said in the wake of all this about if you really are exercising your capacities by engaging in political activism, maybe to some extent you do, but I think there's a lot of time used on political activism that could be used better with your family or with your friends or trying to make a difference on a small level instead of, you know, going yeah. to the capital of the nation and trying to make a big difference that way. I think a lot of people use their capacities in ways, and this doesn't mean all political, you know, forms of demonstration are bad, but maybe over-focus on that and under-focus on the places in their lives, the capacities they could really make a difference in Yeah, the, those sectors, whether yeah, it's their work I, or their school. And or I their think family. that's kind of the original point I was trying to make is we wouldn't have the incentive to go do that stuff to protest the federal stuff if the federal stuff didn't have the powers that they do, that, it, that it's blossomed into. And I would say and if we had a more federalist approach to bringing the United States back to let's let California be California, let's let Kansas be Kansas and keep the federal powers real low. And maybe this is my personal belief, but I even think with the federal powers how they are right now people are still probably overusing their time, you know, even if they were larger, not because I don't think that they should be smaller, but because I think a lot of times these things make very small differences, but you can make very big differences in in big portions of your life, like your job and your family and your church and things like that. Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap unless there's any final words. Well, fantastic. This has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, and I'd like to thank you all for listening, and please feel free to forward our podcast along to people or put in a five-star review on, on whatever apps you're using that helps people find us. We have continued to grow. Peter, what did you say our, our growth was 50%? From yeah, a little, a little over 50% yeah. for podcast so listens. We've seen some, some good growth, and uh, we sure have fun having our conversations, and glad you're along for the ride as well. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.